Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery and mental health. I'm your host, Chris West. Go to our website, recovereverything.com, to say hello. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything, and find us on all your major streaming platforms. The Recover Everything podcast. That's us. Go listen. Say hi. Have a good time. My guest this episode is Paul Volcherno from the Shine a Light Project and Freedom House. The Shine a Light Project is a very unique effort in Las Vegas, whereas people go down into the storm drains that run all under Las Vegas and help the people that live there. There's a large population of individuals, homeless, that that live in these tunnels. It's very dangerous, and the Shine a Light Project tries to help. Paul also talks about his transition from living in these tunnels to working to help get people out of them. My co-host today is Chelsea Money. Enjoy. joke that I've ever remembered that stuck with me since high school, but you have to have the accent for it to make sense. But whatever, there's a guy sitting in a bar looking really depressed. Yeah. So uh, after a couple hours goes by, a couple guys approach him and go, Hey man, what's, what's going on with you? And he's like, you see that bridge down there by the bay? He's like, I built that bridge with my bare hands. He's like, does anybody call me McGregor, the bridge builder? Nope. <laughs> but you see the boat docked to the bridge. It's like I built that boat with my bare hands. But does anybody call me McGregor the boat builder? Nope. Mm. You sleep with one goat. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a punchline there. Yeah, yeah. That is the punchline. <laughs> Oi. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Recover Everything Podcast. I'm your host, Chris, uh, co-hosting is Chelsea Money. Hello, beautiful people. And we have Paul, say it one more time again. Votrino. Votrino from Freedom House and Shine Light. Yes, sir. What are, what are you most connected to? Is it 50-50? I mean, it's all one. So um, Freedom House adopted Shine Light. Okay. So it's mainly Freedom House. So explain to the listeners what Freedom House is. So Freedom House, we have pretty much the whole continuum of care here. We do residential inpatient treatment, which is traditionally 90 days, but we have 30 day tracks and 60 day tracks for men. Um, we have sober living, which is a 60 man apartment building style, uh, sober living. And then we just launched our women's sober living program, which right now is in a home with 12 beds. And we are exploring matching the model that we have for the men with the women, but we're trying to go slow as far as not just the apartment style, but also with treatment. But we wanted to kind of get our feet wet first before we jump too far into women. And then what is the model like for men that you're trying to duplicate? 
Well, we have like, again, the whole continuum of care where they'll come with us an inpatient for the 90 days and then they slide next door across the alley right there into our sober living. And from there we have basically it's a four month case management system where we help them get their jobs and their socials and their birth certificates, ID, Medicaid, EBT. We link them in with any resources that they need specifically, like maybe through the VA or social security income. And we, we hold their hand for the most part all the way through. Okay. And, uh, a lot of our guys are court guys or, um, NDOC or straight homeless. What's NDOC? Nevada Department of Corrections. Oh, fair enough. I should have think I should know that. <laughs> Are a lot of people in uh, that work for you in recovery? Majority of them. Um, I mean, all the way from our counselors down, I would say 80% of our employees are in recovery. Do you think it, that's beneficial? When I first got sober, I couldn't see it any other way. Okay. Like I figured like personally, the only person I'm going to listen to is somebody that's walked the same path or similar to the one that I have and have come out of it. Um, then one day a clinician who is in recovery, but has, you know, an open mind to that looked at me and he's like, so if you were to have a traumatic brain injury and you were going to get rushed into the hospital, um, the surgeon that's going to perform the the brain surgery on him, are you going to ask him like, Hey, have you ever busted your head open and had brain surgery before? Of course. Well, <laughs> and in that moment I was like, oh, okay, checks out, you know, and, and I've grown a lot, you know, through my own process of recovery, but also in this, um, field, I've learned a lot about being more open-minded to all the pathways in recovery and all the different people that are willing to support our journeys in recovery, regardless of their experience. So with hiring people that are, that are in recovery, is there like a grace period? Cause they're obviously dealing with things and then you give them, them work with responsibilities. Uh, is there like a little bit of leeway there? Uh, are they just, you do know? you like to have your people who you hire, um, have some, what of a foundation before they get hired on? I mean, that's tricky. Personally, Paul, yes. And I, I, uh, I'm blessed enough to be ingrained in the community where I can watch their feet as it were before I take anybody on. But legally, professionally, like I'm not allowed to hold those standards to anybody. Hmm. Like I don't get to make those decisions, um, and ask them those questions. Does your organization have like a policy, I guess, would be another way of putting it, a policy where people have to have a certain time or amount of recovery before they work here? Yeah. It's like yeah. two years most two places years. have, yeah. yeah. Two years. And um, it also depends. Like it's, um, like I have live-ins and, and to have a live-in house manager to say, I need you to have two years of recovery, you're not going to find those guys. Right. And so that becomes watching their feet, like how engaged are they and how, and so my minimum there is around nine months people. And I've always looked at it as it's going to be a rotating mm -hmm. position. So let's find somebody that's doing really well. That's having a hard time saving some money or whatever, give them an opportunity to have free rent, some responsibility, and they'll usually hang around for six months. And then they rotate back into life and then we find somebody else to fill those shoes. Do you have people who had been through your program before wanting to 
then be employed or give back to your program. constantly, constantly. But because we're SAP to certified, um, we have to jump through some hoops when it comes to the hiring process. It's completely out of our hands. Everybody has to pass their background check and mm-hmm. there's certain charges that will keep people from being able to do so. That makes sense. Um, but like, <laughs> You know, what's, what's funny about that is I really don't know. I, they gave okay. us a sheet mm-hmm. and so we've gone off that sheet and then said, okay, you'll, you'll be good. And then they're not. Right. There's some, uh, there's some charges, there's some felonies that people who, um, are in recovery, aren't able to work in behavioral health or the medical industry, if Fair you enough. will, for, you know, a certain amount of years. Right. But even petty larceny. Mm-hmm. That misdemeanor yeah. petty larceny will keep you out of working in this field hmm. for X amount of time. Right. That's wild. Isn't it, isn't it funny? Not funny, but, um, I've experienced it's that in other ironic. realms as well. You yes. know what I mean? Like I can um, see both sides. I mean, sure. there's policies and then I can see the other side where people change. I think it's also important for us to educate policymakers in these terms to mm-hmm. say, you know, people who in recovery for, you know, two or year, more years have a foundation that they've built, that they've changed their lives entirely and that, you know, they shouldn't be able to not work in this industry or any medical industry. So I've always thought about your peer recovery thing is some of these guys have enough time to get that, but yet they can't get employed. Right. Uh, for the listeners, explain to him what he's talking about. So peer recovery support specialists are uh, what Paul's referring to as, you know, helping people who people who have lived experience helping others who are new to recovery, you know, get a foundation, find what pathway of recovery they're choosing and kind of support them and cheerlead them on into sustaining their own recovery. And that's pretty much where you work. Is their yeah. basis? Well, we at Foundation for Recovery, and I know this isn't my interview per se, but <laughs> uh, Foundation for Recovery does a peer recovery support specialist training, and we're one of the only training bodies in the state. Hello, Alexa. Uh, we're only we're one of the only training bodies in the state that does it in person. So we train people in the Las Vegas and Reno area in person. Paul, do you find it hard, uh, like getting to know people and then them leaving and you never seeing them again? Mm. It's bittersweet. You know, I, um, when I first got this job, I got, I would, I always tell people that I'm bringing in, like you get really attached to your first group or two of guys where, um, when they run, when they, uh, leave here and then relapse or you see their name pop up back in custody or the courts are like, Hey, will you take him back? Like it's heartbreaking. Um, it's really hard because in a 90 day model, almost everybody experiences some type of growth. So you get to gauge from the day they come in to the day they left, there's some hope. Mm -hmm. And, um, still it's like, I, I don't, it's the one percenters, like one out of every 10 are making it out of this and, and going to continue to go on. And, um, but as time has gone on, like, I think I've learned how to revel in the successes more than to focus on the failures. What do you think are some of the reasons why people don't make it? I mean, I believe a lot of that lies in um, my personal opinion, the 12 steps. You know, um, my wife says all the time, like, this is not a buffet. 
you don't get to pick and choose what you're going to do here. Like you're either going to do it all or, you know, no half measures, right? Avail of this, nothing. And uh, I feel like there's always certain hangups that people have. I tell a story when, you know, for me, I came into recovery in like 2006 and I wanted it and I didn't make it. And then I came back into recovery in 2011 and I needed it and I didn't make it. And it wasn't until 2014 that I came in and I did it. Did it actually work? And I feel like that's really what it what it is, is these guys want it, they need it, but they just aren't buying into the concept of that personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Mm. They're not doing everything that's handed to them to do because they're picking and choosing what it is that they're comfortable with. And you're saying that's not it's not viable. It's not. You know, there's no middle of the road solution, as they tell us. And um, a lot of that goes against what we think we are who we think we are, sure. our principles and these guiding forces that have directed us to the point where we need help. So you're saying that if you're not completing the steps correctly or all the way through, you're less likely to uh, succeed. And I wouldn't narrow it down to just the steps. I use that as an example of like when we're given the 12 steps, you got to do one through 12. Yeah. Right. So when these guys come into treatment and there's a lot of different ways to do this, but like whatever way you choose to do it, they have a format that's outlined in the sense that this is you do it all or you get none of the results. Like you think like if I put half the effort in, I'll get half the results. It's not how it works. Mm. Mm. So finding a pathway, whatever that is, Correct. but like finding that community and going all the way is what right. you're saying. Right. Yeah. There's not really any half results when getting. No, you know, saving your life. Mentally. Right? It's like you're either <laughs> yeah. sober or you're not. Or you're not. <laughs> Pregnant or you're not. Right. Right. That's a great example. You mean. And. Uh, so let's get into you, Paul. Yeah. Uh, you have. An interesting story, as I'm told. Um, actually, before that, let's talk about Shine a Light. I think we should touch on that before we get into your story. So Shine a Light was founded, I want to say it was 2009 by Matthew O'Brien. He's a local author. Um, he had heard a story about a guy that had killed somebody in the, the and then escaped the murder scene through the drains. Um, the flood drains out here in Yeah, Vegas. for people that are listening, Las Vegas has... Large tunnels underneath it. How many miles? A hundreds, like four or five hundred miles worth of tunnels. And people live down there and people escape crime. Crime scenes. Right, right. So the guy and so I used to ditch school in them. Okay, and and when I when I was down there, it was a lot of that, and I'll get into that. But um so he was just curious, what did this guy experience? Because the police set up this dragnet, he ends up escaping and they they couldn't figure out how, and then they later realized it was through the flood drains and uh so he just goes down there, uh, just like an investigative reportive piece. And uh, then he starts running into people. And um, so he just kind of started making that his pursuit. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to talk to these guys. I'm going to hand them whatever they need. And he was working with local agencies in town, like if they were to ask for help. He himself couldn't provide the that level of help, but he would work with local agencies. And long story short, a lot of those partnerships started to fall off. Like it just, he wasn't able to do in real time for these guys what they needed to do. And the one thing about, and this is another back to the question of why they might not get it is, is like when we decide we need the help, we need to be helped then. Okay. Not 10 minutes from then, but right. Then. Cause anything can happen with our disease in 10 minutes. I mean, somebody could walk by and give me $5 and I'm no longer at rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
So he decided he's going to do another book. He meets me. The book is based on um, people that have made it out and are doing well. And we get to talk and he asked for an hour of my time and it ended up being like two, three hours that we were sitting there talking and he invites me to go down there. And at this time I had about two years of recovery and, and I was, I felt comfortable with my foundation to go down and I didn't realize he was vetting me out. So he had gotten a job in San Salvador to go and teach English out mm-hmm. there. And he was trying to find somebody to hand this to. And as soon as he started talking to me about that, uh, we have here at Freedom House a scholarship program where we pull people off the streets, people that call that aren't able to afford this solution. And we scholarship them through treatment and through housing until they can get on their feet. And I thought, well, this would be a great program to pair with our scholarship program. So what we do now is every weekend for eight hours, I have a team of about four or five guys go out and we scour the flood drains. And you, we, you just go down there? Yeah. Um, three or four of us have lived down there. I lived down there for quite some time. And I try to keep those people close in recovery that know the story, that know the element. Like if you're going down there with somebody, it's with somebody that's lived there. Mm-hmm. And um, we just hand out socks, toothbrushes. Uh, we have a partnership with Bishop Gorman and they make us sandwiches that last about three months and they give us little goodie bags. And so we go down there and we hand it out and then we have little business cards and I'm a firm believer in not trying to talk them out of that here. This is our card. This is what we do. Um, call us when you need us. And I'm, I'm very big on uh this is a lasting offer mm-hmm. forever. An open offer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think people remember you when you, um, uh tell them that. And then maybe when they are ready, they'll be like, I remember that guy. Oh yeah. I mean, I've had it. I've had people wander up to the front door and they, they're like, where's Paul? Mm. And, uh, we get him in. Um, I've had people that I've, one of my favorite stories, this guy had more flies swarming around his head than he had hair on it. Mm. And he would never talk to us, you know, but he would always, I would ask him, do you want some stuff? And he just kind of nod his head and he's an older gentleman. And we just, you know, drop off stuff and we'd keep going. And I got used to that with him. One day I went down there and I just said, Hey man, how you doing? And we started unpacking and he's like, get me out of here. Wow. I mean, this was like seven or eight months of meeting and talking with this guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we snatched him up right then and there. He's been in our program for the last 15 months. Oh my goodness. You know what I mean? And, um, chain reaction. The guy that he camped with a month later reached out, same thing. Hey, how's he doing? He's doing good. Well, it's, do you have availability? We snatched him up. Now they're roommates together in our, in our program next door and they're both fully employed. And, um, we have women that we've pulled out like up to date in the last year of us really fully like wrapping this into freedom house. We've gotten out about 15, 16 of them and 10 of them are still out and doing well. And how long this year or in general? Uh, we took it over in June 2017, but we were very hesitant at first because we were kind of just, let's see what we're doing. Let's see how to do this. So throughout 2018 is really where those numbers come from. Because for the first four or five, well, for the first couple months, I went by myself. Yeah. I just wanted to get the lay of the land. Then I brought a friend of mine in and then he would go with me because I had an interesting experience. So. Well, A, I want to know about the interesting experience and B, how do you convince somebody to go into the tunnels? It's not as hard as you'd think. Mm-hmm. Um, I get approached now more than I have to convince. Right. Okay. You know, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? And I um, want to go. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's spiritual in nature and I know that's almost contradicting, but you go down there and you realize all these stories that you hear and whatnot aren't really true. 
You know, these guys, nobody chooses to live underground. They just don't know how to get out and they kind of choose to accept that. But as far as the beginning went, um, it did take a little bit of like, it, this, it hurts my heart to say this, but we, we, we are in a service-based um, program and it's hard to get people to commit to certain kind of services because we're, we're kind of prone to know that, well, if I take a commitment at this meeting, that's what, that's my mm -hmm. service. If I'm doing my sponsor time, that's my service. And, um, to get out there and, you know, boots on the ground, uh, the one that's still suffering is, is something that everybody would say, yeah, I'll come, I'll come. And then you call them up and they're like, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. Right. But now over the course of a year, like I have steady volunteers and I mean, we have a whole spreadsheet of about 30 people that rotate with us. And I found, you know, part of that was my fault. I'm asking somebody to come every week. So it's mm -hmm. a volunteer basis. 100%. Okay. 100%. There's a Freedom House employee on site every time we go, but outside of that, it's 100% volunteer. It's amazing. So what about this incident? So, I mean, I'm going in there basically thinking like I lived down here for three years. I've got some immunity and I go into a tunnel that I'm familiar with people that I was homeless with. And, uh, there was a guy down there random that I had never met before. And he pulls a knife out on me and, mm -hmm. and, uh, what are you doing down here? And da, da, da. And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't long. I just, Hey man, I'm just down here handing out some stuff. Just trying, do you guys need any help? I got some water, some granola bars, whatever, et cetera. And he's like, Oh, okay. And then, but I realized in that moment, like I'm alone, I'm alone down here. Like I need somebody to come with me. Yeah. And, uh, even two guys is, is shady. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, that's why we go in groups of four or five. How hesitant are the people down there when they first meet you? Very. Very right. And, and I mean, essentially I, this is how you have to process it. Like I walked through your front door, sat down at your dining room table and said, Hey, I got some help for you to want it. And yeah, it's I like, where some, are you coming from, man? Like I just brought you some stuff in your own house yeah. without asking. Right. You know, and, and I'm here and talk to me and, uh, like I know from when I live down there, there's ways that you, you walk in you know, you announce yourself and, and you let them know what you're doing. You don't ever just go in and then run into them and say, this is what I'm doing. You always want to make it clear and then get acknowledgement that somebody heard you. Mm -hmm. So you don't bring a large, like posse or uh bodyguard boom box playing right. loud box. music. No. And, and, and you also like, so I went down there in the very beginning with a group and like, they were just all excited to be down there and they're laughing and making jokes oh, no. and they're, and it's like, man, these guys are at their lowest, lowest bottom. And you're saying you're, that you brought a group down there that were joking. And sure. And it was very early on. And the guys were just excited, mm -hmm. having fun. And they, right. they weren't talking about anything about these guys, but they were just, somebody said a joke and they're all laughing and the joke didn't die. And they kept talking, talking. And I, it clicked. I'm like, this isn't <laughs> productive. Right. You know, but they were probably humbled really quickly. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, and, um, so, I mean, there's a lot, a lot, I mean, when I was down there, I saw things that I'm hesitant to repeat, mm -hmm. you know? Well, now I'm going to ask you <laughs> about your time down there. Well, you don't, you don't have to, obviously. No, I, no, absolutely. I, I really want to know too, like for the people that have no idea that there's even the flood channels down there, like paint a picture of what it looks like down there. Like, like, are there beds? Are there, like, how does, how do people it's live? Like, it's about six feet there? tall. Yes. Something like well, that. It varies. Some okay. of them you have to army crawl into 
and then they open up. Yeah. Um, some of them are complete wreck. They're sleeping on uh, cardboard boxes and trash all around them. Some of them are neat freaks and it looks like you've legitimately just walked into a Seagull Suites and they've got a bed and a dresser and a fire pit going and um, you get creative with grocery carts. It seems to be the thing when you're homeless and uh, I mean, it's it's their own little apartment. So you walk a couple of feet and you see somebody's apartment essentially, and then you keep walking. Are they close together or? It depends on the tunnel. So some of them are very um, communal. So they're very close. Mm. They stack. Some of them are not. They, they separate, you know, there are huge gaps. A lot of them separate themselves by hanging drapes mm -hmm. or some kind of barrier that gives them the sense of privacy. So each camp you come up to, you essentially have to get permission to go through that drape. And then you go out the next wow. and then you got to get permission to go through the next one. And so it's pitch black down there. Uh, yes. I, I, I tell people all the time and I don't know that this explains it clearly, but it's what resonates within me is you could turn off the light and eyes wide open and feel like you're not surrounded by concrete. It feels like this huge open space because you can't see the concrete oh. that's three feet away from you. Interesting. I don't have time down there, but again, I used to ditch school and we, right. we would hang out. Uh, the part that was scary the most to me, and again, this is because I wasn't living there. There was a ton of black widows. <laughs> yeah. So like everywhere. Oh no. Gigantic so, spiders. So when I, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did, no. I, was that a trigger for you? <laughs> yeah. It roots. So that there's, I want to say they're wolf spiders. I don't know what they are, but I've since learned that they were wolf spiders. They're about the size of a baseball and huge. And, yeah. um, so I, the first one I ever came across, you could hear it. Oh my God. It's <laughs> running across the, uh, concrete and I look down at it and it's this huge spider. And this is what I remember is, is like it's fangs open, not only horizontally, but vertically, vertically. Right. So, so my <laughs> first reaction, I'm going to step on this and kill it. Right. And so I, I, I go to step. It's way too strong for that. It rolls oh, no. away from my, and I'm like, you deserve to live. You know, like, <laughs> it's you, like, this is not my first rodeo. Right, right, You're not right. the first guy that tried to step on me. You should go to the circus. Like, um, so then, and mind you, please forgive like any insanity that exists down there because I'm addicted to heroin and meth at the right. time. And, uh, I thought of, I was stealing these Bluetooth speakers that would come in this dome like package. Right. And so I had all that you save every container mm -hmm. you can get when you're in the tunnels. Cause everything's gotta be waterproof. You have to store everything so that when the water comes, it's safe. So I saved all these containers and I started catching these wolf spiders and like making trophies out of them. No. Right. And it was, I remember one day I'm, I'm laying in bed about not, I'm nodding off and I heard it and I jumped up and it was like, it made my day that here we go. We're back to hunting like crazy. And then about the widows, yeah. I was preparing a shot. I don't know of heroin or meth, but I'm preparing a shot. And, um, I had gotten really good at protecting my bed. That was the most important thing for me was the bed. Everything else could be regathered, regained. Um, but when the mattress gets soaked, you have to trash it, you know, like, so I had it strapped to pallets. Um, and then the pallets were strapped to tires so that it would float. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. And, um, resourceful. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine the ingen ingenuity that you get living down there. So I dropped the needle as I was doing it through the pallet. So I had to unstrap everything in order to lift the um, box spring off the pallet. And I lifted it up and there was like eight or nine black widows living at the bottom of your bed. Yeah. 
and uh, just chilling. Yeah. I mean, and, and so a story when I first get down there is these old timers, I, you walk in the middle of the tunnels on the edges cause they're rounded. The spider webs connect from the top to the side mm. wall. So they're at an angle where I come running into the tunnel and I ran into a spider web and that didn't freak me out. It's when I looked down that I saw the black widow on me uh. and I caught an instant resentment. So I resentment. Yes. I mean, like <laughs> I was terrified. That's what fear does to me. Yes. I get mad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like I go out and I collect all the newspaper I can and I lit I running up and down these tunnels, burning all the spider webs. And so you went Punisher spiders. on all the Black Widows and then got in trouble for it. The Bye. old timers down there oh. were like, what are you doing? Like, this is their space, too. Like, you huh. you need to let go of that. Like, huh. like they got hot at me. And so you just learn to coexist. Mm. You know, I mean, I found rabbits down there. There's bats that live down there. There's dogs yeah. that come through. And Right, right. So can we talk about how you ended up in the tunnels? Sure. We're kind of going from, we're going in a weird timeline. Usually we would start with that and get to progressing, but we're going backwards today. Welcome to my brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, I was addicted to heroin and, uh, I started using heroin at like 19, 18, 19 years old. Originally from Vegas? Born and raised. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the Las Vegas Academy out here, the high school, and my mom was an addict. She was addicted to crack and meth, and she was, you know, your garden variety drunk. It all really depended on what decade Same-sies. it was, you know? And um, so I grew up in different families my whole life. Like, and my mom had this trick that I've learned that she's since explained to me where she would sign these temporary test custody agreements and in doing so you don't lose your custodial rights. So she could still apply for food stamps. Mm. She could still get the Medicaid from me and all that. And, um, but they only last two years, but if you sign one after a year, like if you do the two year option, um, you lose your rights. So she refused to sign them. So I would jump from family to family to family under these temporary mm-hmm. custody agreements, um, from the age of eight to 16. And, uh, she, when she would get well, like I moved in with her three or four times, never longer than 90 days. Each time I moved in with her in between that time span. And when she would get well, she would bring me to these meetings and I, and then from that meeting, she'd bring me to the dealer's house. Now I grew up in these houses. I knew who these people were. I knew the dealers. And so it was like, instantly I started to build this, um, resentment against 12 steps Mm -hmm. instantly. Like this is, this is doesn't Bullshit. work. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not, uh, it's not helping at all. My mom at all. And yeah. here I am going back to some stranger's house. Yeah. You know, and, um, it must've seemed redundant the whole process. Sure. And I, I mean, I've learned coping skills that I'm still working on that right. are probably not the most healthy. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I say this and I've only ever shared this on an individual basis, but I, I feel inspired to say it. But like when my son was born, it took me three months to even register a connection with my son because mm-hmm. I realized those coping skills are like, do not get close with nothing. Absolutely. They're gone. Yeah. I have the same, I have same right? similar issues because I have a similar story with, with my mom. Right. And so, um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I understand the mission at hand here and I, uh, so I move in to this house and this is a high schooler's dream. You know, I was your average stoner, hippie, theater major, um, pothead, mushrooms, acid. That was it. And as far as we would all, we're not drug addicts. We just smoke weed. <laughs> we would have been know? friends. Right. <laughs> and, um, we get a house. So, and this is through a whole different 
reasoning, but this mom of my best friend ends up basically putting two years worth of rent down on a home and then doesn't need the home. Lucky for you. Knows my story. And I was on the verge once again of getting rotated out of this home. And she's like, just come, just come stay here. I'll put you and I'll put him in there. And she's like, you guys can find anybody you want to live with you. And next thing you know, it's two years of anywhere between 18 and 22 year olds, about 12 of us living in this home. And then it's a rotating basis. Like it was like all the people that lived in the home lived upstairs. And then we had 10 or 20 people that would rotate through the living room every two to three, four weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, flop house, but high school level hippie style flop house, you know, and, uh, video games, weed, everything, right. Alcohol. Um, And, uh, we did every drug that came through that door and, here I am, my ego is telling me like, we're doing cocaine for two weeks and then we stopped doing cocaine and I don't need more cocaine. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, but meth comes in to replace the cocaine. So we're doing meth for a couple of weeks and the meth stops and I'm not craving meth. So I'm good. Right. And we're drinking and we're drinking and then the, we don't want to drink anymore. So we stop. And so I'm not able to relate to my mom. So I think, mm-hmm. right. Like I'm not really computing that. I'm just replacing, replacing, replacing. I'm looking at the fact that she was addicted to one drug and needed that drug. And I don't. And then somebody comes in through the door and they're like, Hey, I got opium. And so, <laughs> I mean, just like everything else, let's do it. And the first time I ever withdrew and it was not opium, it was heroin. <laughs> she lied. The first time I ever withdrew from it, um, I, <laughs> we all withdrew from it. Yeah. And nobody knew. We thought we were sick. We thought we had the flu. Wow. And we just made it. And then a couple months passes and we're like, hey, we should do the opium again. And that withdraws when we all registered. It was the opium. We were dope sick. Yeah. And it was, that was it. The day my mind recognized that there was a solution, it was a wrap. Hmm. Okay. So you're like, oh, if I get sick, I'll just do more heroin. Yeah. And, and and, And it progressed quickly. So how long from that uh, house to tunnels? Five years. And I was off and on homeless. I had made a, I bought a bus ticket to go to LA. I came to in Juarez, Mexico on the border of Texas. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me how. And they're asking me, what are you doing in Juarez? And I'm like, I don't know. But- I have no idea. Like I didn't even really know at the time that Juarez was in Texas, mm. like or on the border of Texas. Like I'm thinking I should be on the border of Cali. Mm. I get let back into San Antonio. <laughs> the insanity of the disease. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, so I go to Florida. I come back and I'm homeless on the streets and I'm basically very loner. Like heroin's not a social drug. And I'm going back and forth from Henderson, Nevada to Summerlin on a bus every six weeks. The logic was if I didn't stay in one place too long, the local store owners and the cops and all that wouldn't recognize me. Less and likely to get kicked out and sure. get in trouble. And- I mean, I would actually get welcomed back. Oh, I haven't seen you in a while. How you been? You need some water, you know? Communal, yeah. Right. Well, no, no, no. I mean by like store owners. Yeah. Oh. You know what I mean? Like inst- I didn't overstay my welcome as mm. it were. And um, one day I'm panhandling out in front of a, a in and out and uh I needed a couple more bucks to pick up. And I remember it was the last pickup of the day is what I was going for. So I was well, I had what I needed. If I did this, then I would be able to make it through the night in the morning and be good. And these guys, this group of guys comes up on me and they're like, Hey man, you've been here too long. You need to give it up. And 
you know, out there, it's all about ego. It's all about standing your ground. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I need like eight more dollars, dude. Like when I make my $8, I'll go. And there was like four or five of them, big boys. And, um, they sat at the table, you know, in and out has those umbrella yeah. tables. Mm-hmm. So they sat at the table right next to me and like stared me down. And I just made my $8 and wandered off. Well, the next, I don't know the time frame. It was either that day or a couple days later, one of them come up to me and he's like, man, you got heart. He's like, where are you staying out here? And I, at the time I was sleeping in that trash bin, uh, encampment at Walmart. So, okay. like, you know, the brick wall. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, just in the Walmart parking lot. And he's like, why don't you come down to the tunnels with us? Do you have to be invited down to the tunnels? I mean, essentially you've got to know somebody down there. Okay. I have some stories about those places that if you're not aware of, and you think you can just wander in there, I highly advise against it. Thank you for saying that. Highly advised. Do not just walk down there, you know, and it really depends. I mean, you might get lucky and they're a good group of guys and you're fine. But the group of guys I ran with, absolutely not. And Violent. Uh, highly. Oof. Like one of them carries around a wrench. It's about a foot long wrench in his back pocket. And if, if he doesn't know who you are, you're getting hit. I've seen it more than two, three dozen times. Oof. You know, and they leave you there. And that's, that's practically murder. It, yeah. Uh, anyways, um, so I go down there and they had set up a little camp for me Yeah, and it was your basic starter kit, right? This little jail mattress and a little, (laughs) they had like a little grocery cart pulled off and I'm sure they didn't go collect these things. They probably just set it all up or whatever. And they're like, here you go, man. Here's your, why did they do this for you? I have no idea. No clue. I mean, but (laughs) I know this is contradicting, but they were really honestly like good communal guys. They had just bought into this, you know, subculture. Yeah, obviously there's like everybody, everybody needs people. Right. Even if you're uh, a violent guy with a wrench. Right. You still need a buddy. And to this day I see him, right? And they're still really, and one of them is like, uh, he always, like, you're the one, man. You're the one that made it out. Like you're, you, you, we look up to you. You you, You could be number two. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but again, it's do you want it or not? And I yeah. mean, I'm always down there offering it. Sure. But they're bought into that. Mm-hmm. And the guys that I was with are are lifers. Like at that time, they had all all of them had been down there for more than ten years. Mm. Wow. And uh, describe that first night, if you can remember. I I clearly I felt comfortable. I felt like I was at home. I mean, they were over here burning fire, drinking Budweisers. You know what I mean? Sharing drugs. I mean, I had arrived. Yeah. You this weren't in it. the elements. Yes. Yeah. This was it. You, you technically had a roof. Right. And, and walls. Yeah. Right. And, but see, and I don't know the flood channels. This is really my first introduction, not only to being in them, but to even knowing they existed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about the floods. I don't know about yeah. the spiders. I, I don't know about what is the channels. And, um, do you please come down there ever? Yeah. I mean, and, and they do sweeps and whatnot. A lot of the times they won't go so deep. And so that leads me to tell you that like, I started selling drugs out of the tunnels and, and through the drains. So like you were on the side of the streets, you see where all the water runs and they got the little sign goes to Lake Mead, please don't pollute. I found points in underground where I could just pass the drugs through there, take your money and I didn't have to come up. Wow. And, uh, the guys didn't like Like the drug dealing it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> You've seen that movie, yes? Heck no. Hell, You've hell seen that movie? No. Yes, absolutely. Listeners know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um, 
So I would travel on a bicycle that I had strapped flashlights to and I would travel up and down this. That seems extremely dangerous. Oh man, I've crashed several <laughs> times. Um <laughs> And uh, sell dope. And these guys didn't like it. I brought too much attention. People were coming down there looking for me because mm. I wasn't at a spot and they would come down there. And so eventually they all left. And I'm going to tell you when you're the last man standing in the land of the forgotten, like, because nobody else wants to live with you. It's like demoralizing. So they just mean? left. Yeah. And they left me there. And they, I mean, it was never bad blood. Like they just, I remember one time I was like, Hey man, where'd you guys go? And they're like, yeah, no. I mean, that was, they didn't want me to know. Like I was stirring up too much shit. So wrench guy said no. Pretty much. Mm. Pretty much. And uh, so I lived as deep back in the tunnels as I could where the cops wouldn't come. Because they come in, they come in so far. But eventually you have to know that this is our element. Mm -hmm. You know, there's what we call inlets and whatnot. And so the tunnels don't connect to all those. There's little inlets that drive all the water to these big six foot, the ones you were describing. So it's this massive system that not, you can't get into all of them physically. It's some of them you could crawl through some of them, like you can maybe hunch through, but they all connect to the system. And so we learned the ins and outs. I could cut into an inlet and you would never know I was there. And the cops know that they're not going to go walk in yards and yards and yards into this because eventually it becomes our territory. This is going to be very insensitive, but all I can think about is uh, Futurama. There's like a whole group of people that live underground. Yeah. Yes. I've seen that episode. I always like there's a set of them down there. I call the Ninja Turtles tunnels mm. Yeah, because they're round and they look like the cartoons and and there's four of them. So now you tell me you're a cop coming into the tunnel and you're following me in and I pick one of four. You don't know where you're going. Right. I do. Yeah. Nor do you, you have know no how to get idea. Out. Right. Right. Describe how you got out now. Mm. So I always say that it was two cops and a cricket that saved my life. I heard about this cricket story. <laughs> we okay. were told to ask you about the cricket. Um, and it's I always have to slow down when I tell this because it's really important to hit the details. So I had um gotten into a fight with her. I had a girlfriend down there for about 18 months. We ran together and I had gotten into a fight with her and I left and I was just floating around on top for about, I don't know, 10 days and I hadn't slept. And, uh, she ends up finding me on day 10. Now I had been arrested and gotten a warrant for not going back to do weekends in the Henderson detention center. Like I had pled down to like show up for 10 weekends and you're good. And I never went, I went once I never went back. And, uh, so she talks me down into coming back in and I'm like, okay. And so as we're walking back to the tunnels, there's one entrance that we saw the marshals on top of. And I looked at her and I said, listen, tonight is the last night we're staying down here. And I had this great plan that I had devised that we were going to get out of the tunnels and go to Summerlin and find some tunnels over there because this was the, my original pattern. I should be swapping. I should be. So my insanity is like, you haven't left in years. You need to go back. You'll be safe. And, uh, mm -hmm. So we go down in there and I had some heroin on me. And like I said, I had been on like a 10 day runner on meth and I wait for her to fall asleep because as selfish as I am, I'm not trying to share what I have. And uh, then I start realizing I really don't like her anymore. <laughs> right. And I'm going to pack up my stuff and I'm going to go. If she's listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've sent, I've, I've connected with her. She's out there. I help her oh, wow. on a monthly basis. Like this is just where I'm at then. Wow. Right. And, um, I'm going to pack up all my stuff and I'm going to go, I'm going to leave her here. And, uh, so I start doing that. I start packing, I start, and I, and it's ritual. It's a ritual when you do what we do. 
And so I start laying everything out and doing it, doing my ritual. And I've got a headlamp on, which cool story. I still use that headlamp to go down into the tunnel. Same lamp. Full circle. Yeah. And, um, I've got a headlamp on and I'm, I'm preparing my stuff and in the distance I see this cricket. Now the game plan is I'm going to do the shot and I'm going to bounce as soon as I'm going to go all the way down to Summerlin. But I see this cricket and I'm looking at this cricket and I got all my heroin is laid out on my lap on this little piece of bag. And, uh, <laughs> it's jumping up to me. And as I explain my history with the spiders and the rabbits and the bats, like I start talking to this cricket and I'm like, don't you do it, man. And it jumps at me and it's this huge fat black cricket. And I panicked. <laughs> I don't know why, but like I like throw back and I throw my hands in the air. My dope goes all over my pants. And now I'm pissed. Mm. So I try that to resentment. Oh, instant. Right. And so I start picking up anything that I can get off my lap and I put it back on this baggie and I start hunting this cricket. Now I've been on a 10 day runner on meth. Like you want to talk about obsessed. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to define obsession any better. I'm looking for a cricket in a tunnel that echoes. So okay. every two or three feet, I can hear the cricket, but I, so I turn to find the cricket and I, two hours I spent trying like to find this It's like a fun house. Thing. Right. Like, right. Never found the cricket. And, uh, eventually I'm like, I just, I need to do this and go. So I go back to the bed to do the shot. Now this is what a 10 minute process. I've just spent two hours chasing a cricket. I sit down as soon as I pull it out, I see two flashlights hit the end of the tunnel. It ends up being two cops. Yeah. Cops come in, they ask me my name, my social, all that. You got they, warrants? Yeah, oh yeah. They asked me if I did and I said no. So their radios don't work underground. So I gave them all my information. She's sleeping next to me and um, I'm like, can I just wake her up? They're like, well, how long will it take you to get out? It was like two minutes. And they're like, yeah, do your thing. We'll be at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> wow. I yell at her. I'm like, get up the cops. And I grab all my stuff and I turn off my flashlight and I run. The other way. The other way. About It's about two miles in the dark. Now, I had trained myself how to get through the tunnels in the dark, knowing that if the cops were ever after me and I had a light on, they'd be able to find me. So I run through this. <laughs> I can hear her screaming in the background, where are you? Fuck you. You know what I mean? Yelling at me. I bail out of the tunnel. I jump this wall. I go in the lows. I do my last shot. I come walking out. All inhibition is gone. And I, my sponsor and I have processed this moment a lot in the beginning, and it was just that complete surrender. She catches up to me and she's like, uh, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Now, my alcoholic mind still plays tricks on me, right? I've still told myself if I had gone back in the tunnel, I would never have gotten caught. Now, this is the moment that changed my life. And I still have this thought, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I looked at her and I was like, I just need a cigarette and a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and we walk over to Panera Bread and we pick a cigarette up out of the ashtray, pull a uh, cup out of the trash can, fill it up full of Dr. Pepper. I go walking out. I'm smoking, drinking. They pull up. They hem me up. Put me in drug court. Wow. And that's that. Yeah. Wow. So God came to me in the form of a cricket. Mm. That's really, had he not distracted me for that two hours, I would have been gone. Yeah, yeah. I would have been gone. Nine months into drug court, I saw the cop that arrested me coming out of an AMPM. I remembered his name all the way up until that day. And I saw him, recognized his name told him what I was doing, how I was doing, thanked him for what he did. Can't for the life of me remember his name anymore. Like it served its purpose, that, you know. I wonder what happened to the cricket. So I'm working at a car wash <laughs> that's 30 I'm yards. I'm sure you have as well. 30 yards away 
from the tunnel that I lived in. It was my first get well job in sobriety. And uh, what's that? A get well job. Yeah. So just take what you can get. I haven't mm. been employed in four years. It's a little minimum wage. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like um, just anything. And I tell my guys that all the time. Like they're looking for $15 an hour. And it's like, man, you've been slanging dope for five years. Go to McDonald's, get a little $8 an hour job and find your $15 an hour job later. It's a get well mm-hmm. job. Just get me back into society doing whatever it is I can do to make an honest dollar. That's a really, really good advice. And um, I'm doing my little get well job and and I was walking back into the bathroom and there's this big black cricket sitting on the wine stand <laughs> and I have a picture of it in my phone and like I walked by it and I stopped and I pulled back and I looked at it and it just was like confirmation because I was in fear of working at this car wash. I mean, 30 yards away, I would keep my bill down by my nose because the guys I lived with were walking back wow. and forth. And I saw that cricket and it was almost like that confirmation that I needed. Like you're, you're right where you need to be. Just keep pushing. Did you think that the people you were living with would would judge you? No, no, no. It's it's nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with, I recognize them. I know I can get dope from Mm -hmm. them and Uh, I'm going to run off with them. Fair enough. I was more afraid of myself than I was of them. Fair enough. Your mind is like, go back. You know, it's like, go back to your ritual, go back to what you're used to, go back to what's comfortable. Yeah. I have four, three years in the tunnels and Mm -hmm. three months in recovery. What's more comfortable. Yeah. And the crickets over here, like, where were you? (laughs) (laughs) How do you go from car wash to, uh, freedom house? Freedom house. Um, a friend of mine had a job here. It was temporary for him, but they were starting the inpatient program. And uh, he's like, hey, man, like you want to interview for this job? They were hiring for Graveyard. They told me in July um, that they were hiring and my son was going to be born in August. And I realized like this car wash job is dependent on tips. It's dependent on the weather. It's you know what I mean? And then like I'm a supervisor up there and like I'm getting burnt out. I've been doing this for two years. So I'd find myself going down there for eight hours, but only staying on the clock for six. And um but I'm making ten twenty five an hour plus about eight dollars an hour in tips, so that's like hard to compete with. And uh, I was like, whatever. And so I come down here, I interview with Jeff Iverson, and Jeff's like, you know, there comes a time, and everybody's like, you got to be given an opportunity, you know, like I'll I will take this risk with you. And I ended up taking the job at nine dollars an hour to work graveyards. And what's cool about it is, is um, we got our first client on the second. And my son was born on the 6th and I knew it was coming and I was worried. I'm thinking like, I'm not going to be able to be there if something happens. Well, that guy runs on the 4th and we didn't get our next client until the 8th. So I ended up getting the 4th to the 8th off to be there for my son's birth. And and then through a series of events, I got hired in July. By December, I had become the program manager because the guy that had my seat, it didn't he actually stayed with us, but he went to do a whole nother thing for us. And they just wrapped me literally from in or from graveyard to program manager. That's nice. I mean, it's a big and, jump. and I had no knowledge of any of this. Mm, They're passion. just like, here you go. Swim. Yeah. And Your passion then, and heart. Right. And I think Jeff kind of saw all of that happening because the interview, the, what he said to me in that moment for a graveyard position was not applicable. What ended up happening four months down the road made sense. Hmm. It's a pondering story just to think <laughs> of like how, you know, mom stuff, tunnel stuff. Now you're here. Now you're programmed. Resilient. Director. I mean, wow. Yeah. You got yeah. kids and a family and you're doing well. Yeah. Beautiful wife. And you're giving back as well. 
And, you know, I, I think it's all contingent on that. You know, um, they talk about you have to, the, the addict or alcoholic who's still suffering. And um, there's a lot of help in the rooms. There's a lot of help in the pathways, all the different ways that you can get to recovery. But I believe that like, I sat down there in the tunnels one day and I, I used to always tell myself like, you're going to get out of this. You're smart enough to get mm. out of this. You're college educated. Look at what you've done in the past. Look at what you've overcome and you're going to make it. And, and I, I lived on that thread of hope for years. And one day I'm down there and that thought hits me like it usually does. And my very next thought was, no, you're not. Mm. You're going to die down here with a needle in your arm. Accept it. And I did. And it was almost relieving Right. Because I realized in that moment, like, this is it, man. Like, stop fighting for this little bit of hope. It doesn't exist. Hmm. And um, do you think it was your voice telling you that you're not going to make it? Or do you think it was like the disease? Well, absolutely. I believe it was the disease. I mean, look at me now. Like, you know what I mean? Like, of course. Um, absolutely. I mean, and that's constantly, like I said, I have that thought of if I had kept going, I would have gotten away. Like right. if you really put that on scales, I have a wife, two and a half kids. I have a stepson or yeah, a stepson, a career job. Right. And my mind's like, if you'd have just kept going. Mm, it's also that. <laughs> you would have died. <laughs> right. But defeat too, you sure. know, like you right. didn't outsmart them or whatever inside sure. our brain. You sure. Know? Like I had spent three years planning my escape yeah. route and didn't do it. Right. <laughs> Ego deflating, right? <laughs> I'm so or, successful, or but I failed. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and um, so that's what drives me with Shine a Light. Okay. You see, and I, and this is no judgment. This is purely observation. Like there are tons and tons and tons of resources for the homeless, not nearly as much as there should be. That's not what I'm trying to say, but they're all there, but it's all above ground. It's the people going out and help even, you know, the good Samaritan, mm -hmm. they're going out and they're helping the people above ground. And you go down in the tunnel to be forgotten where you go to the point where you convince yourself that there's no hope you'll never get out. And I honestly feel like the 10 people that are still doing what they're doing successfully in this program never thought that they would be in this program. Hmm. They had reached a point where they were like, yeah, I'm screwed. And I, and that's the, the, the tunnels for me is just to go down there and say, hey, we're here. Just so that if you ever have that thought, you know that you're lying to yourself. Shine a little light. You know what I mean? So... I read an article when we, when Vegas was having so many storms and, you know, there was so much going on. I read an article from you guys, I believe, and your partnership with other agencies, um, about people don't understand that, you know, there are flood Channels. tunnels. Yeah. And so like how that's where water goes, not people. Right. right. And so the amount of time, once it starts to pour that people have to leave and that you were, you guys were able to go in there and help get people into safety. You have 30 to 90 seconds before it becomes dangerous. Wow. Okay. You know what I mean? And the ground becomes slick. So at ankle high water, it's 30 miles an hour. You're not gonna be able to keep your balance. Wow. You just um, float on your bed with tires or? Pretty much. I mean, I have a story that I run against the current one time because of something that was at the end of the tunnel that I needed. I needed it. We had spent forever trying to get it and and we left it down there in the rain and what was it um power inverter mm -hmm. okay you plug it to a battery and you've got electricity mm -hmm. yeah and my i mean i couldn't stop myself i ran against the current and i mean i almost drowned twice there's two moments in that whole run through the tunnel where i got sucked down into the and i tried to come up and there was something above my head um but to what you're saying like um it's quick, it's fast, it's devastating. Nobody chooses that. 
right? Like they choose to buy into the hopeless side of it. They don't choose that and you lose everything all at once. And so right now I'm devastatingly low on supplies and I don't give them clothes and I don't, I don't give them things like that. I give them the socks and the granola bars and gift cards, $5 gift cards to McDonald's, little, little thing, a jar of peanut butter. Um, and we're low because the rain comes and it's crazy to me how aware they are of, no, I don't need anything today. I have enough. I get that a lot. No, 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 no. I, you gave me three pairs of socks last time. I've only used one. Give them to somebody who needs it. Wow. So after the waters come though, everybody's like, I don't have sh- nothing, nothing, you know? And, uh, it's not something that like I ask anybody to do when it's raining. I don't ask anybody to come. They all call, Hey, what are we doing? Wow. Because you can't ask somebody to put themselves in that position, nor do we even go down anymore. We hang out on the sides and we, we try to help, you know? So if you, to, to amend my response, I think the only thing I would add is, is if you ever find yourself getting rid of anything or interested in helping in any way to just call down to Freedom House, because we can, this is a community project, grassroots effort in it, in its entirety. Like there's not funding. There's not like Freedom House supports us in a huge way by the scholarship fund and the beds. And Jeff Iverson has come out of pocket dozens of times to help replenish my supplies, but I'd like us to be more of a community effort, self-supporting in that way of, Hey, I've got 20 toothbrushes. I can donate. That helps. Yeah. Water, get, go ahead. Do you guys have nonprofit status and whatnot yet? Or? It's a freedom house program. So it, we are nonprofit through freedom house. Fair enough. What are some of the other supplies that you need? Socks, batteries, which I understand is a little bit more expensive batteries, anything hygiene, feminine, anything. The females is the hardest thing for me to get. Or I have now (laughs) a friend of mine, I told that too, she showed up with four boxes of tampons and pads. So I'm good on that right now. Granola bars, granola bars, granola bars, granola bars. Cause like I, I used to bring down shoes and clothes and and I was like, what am I doing? Like these guys are getting more comfortable because of me. Mm. I just want to get them through the week. I don't want to get them more comfortable and replace what they've lost so much as here's some food. Basic needs. Right. And socks is the most important. Like I still have a toenail (laughs) that is recovering. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to laugh. No, yeah, but recovering from the fact that I lived in still water for three years. Yeah. And, and wet shoes and wet socks and, and, uh, dry socks. I'll tell you, that's the one thing everybody's like socks. Hmm. Um, but hygiene and socks would be the most where can people find you? 3852 Palos Verdes. Like websites and what? Yeah, we have, um, there's a Shine a Light website. There's also um, Freedom House's website, which has a link to the Shine a Light website. Fair enough. Um, you guys on all the social media and whatnot? Well, Facebook, I don't believe, I think just Facebook. But yes, yeah, Shine a Light Facebook page and um, a Freedom House Facebook page. I'll put the links on yeah. for you. That'd be great. Thank you so much. This was awesome. It's good. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you so much for finding recovery and then being able to utilize that experience to helping others in those situations. I mean, I applaud you. Oh, thank you. It was handed to me. I wish I could take credit. I just kind of ran with it. The cricket. <laughs> Did you ever name the cricket? No. No. No, but I, th- I there's certain circles of people that call me Jiminy Cricket. I love it. Yeah. I'm a, never mind. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you.
subscribe and listen on all the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Give us a rating on that iTunes, Apple podcast thing. We uh, need them. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. Go to our website, recovereverything.com to tell us a story, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.